Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 festival. Hello, and welcome to this Sydney Writers' Festival Curiosity Lecture. My name is Sally Coleman. I'm a musician, a writer, and a radio presenter that most recently was a host of Triple J Breakfast. And I'm very excited to welcome you to this talk from Chrissy Neen on how mushrooms can save your life. Now, before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that the land that we're on today belongs to the Gadigal people of the Yarra Nation. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging. And I also want to recognise the ongoing relationship between Gadigal people and the country that we're on. So we're about to hear from Chrissy Neen, who is the author of a best-selling memoir about love, sex and intimacy called Affection. She's written several novels, including Steeplechase, Triptych, and The Adventures of Holly White and the Incredible Sex Machine. She's also won the Thomas Shapcott Poetry Prize for her collection, Eating My Grandmother. When Chrissy was faced with the mental health impacts of COVID-19, though, she was forced to rethink her writing practice. And as a result, she ended up taking a deep dive into the world of mushrooms. So in this curiosity lecture, she's going to be telling us why mycologists are the curious scientists and explore how mycelium might become the saviour of our planet and humankind. Please welcome Chrissy Neen. Hello, everybody. I will also um, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we are standing on here and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So here is a confession. I have terrible performance anxiety. I have pretty bad general anxiety and a big whack of depression as well. When I was asked if I could do one of these curiosity lectures, I had a panic attack. Talking about something that is not your main field is pretty terrifying, but mushrooms have helped me deal with my anxiety, so I owe mushrooms this lecture, and here I am. There was a bit of an intersection in my life in grade 12, where I had to choose between science and art. You couldn't do both in my school. I wanted to do both. I loved science, but I chose art. So now I'm a writer. If I had chosen science, I wonder if I would have become a mycologist, a scientist specialising in the study of mushrooms. I suppose giving this lecture is like going back to my sliding doors moment. This is the lecture I would have been giving right now if I had chosen science, except there would have been more technical terms and I'd probably be much more confident with my subject matter. Anyway, this writer, wannabe mycologist, is going to talk about mushrooms, and in particular, how mushrooms will save your life. So let's start with Mycology 101. What is a mushroom? Well, here are the basics. A mushroom is the fruiting body of the mycelium, an underground mass that looks like a neural network if you look at it. Um, and mush a couple of fun facts, mushrooms often look like a penis and sometimes have a vulva. And a vulva is an egg-like sac that the mushroom pokes out of. So it, there's lots of kind of strange genital kind of um, correlations here with mushrooms. I suppose my interest might be sparked a bit there. 
Anyway, another fun fact is that Charles Darwin's daughter used to collect stinkhorn mushrooms and burn them to protect the morals of the maids. They are a little bit phallic at times. So anyway, that's it. That's the mushroom lecture. So now that you know the basics, I'm going to take you on the journey that I took in 2020, a journey that ignited my passion for mushrooms and led me on a deep dive into the kingdom of fungi. In 2019, I began writing a novel, and it was about a pandemic. It was a hopeful novel, a novel where a disaster, like a pandemic, had unexpected consequences. In my embryonic book, those who were infected with the virus and survived began to have a strange and wonderful relationship with nature. Those who recovered from the virus found a new normal. That sounds familiar now, but at the time it didn't. Um, where they began to work with instead of against nature. The book was set in a small town and took place very, very localised. Those who recovered from that virus knew that the only way to save the planet from environmental destruction was to spread that disease across the world. My characters literally needed to create a pandemic in order to save the world from a climate disaster. Cut to January 2020. The first reports of a new virus in Wuhan province began to hit the news. At first, I was pretty excited. This was life imitating art. I began to take copious notes. I researched everything there was to know about the novel coronavirus. I kept dates and facts in my notebook. I could set the book day by day in real time. I kept notes about the weather. But very soon, my notebook was full to overflowing and I was overwhelmed by the real life spread of the coronavirus. I began to think that writing about a pandemic in the middle of a pandemic was probably a stupid thing to do. I needed a mechanism, though, to link the people in this small town, something that could be ingested or breathed in, something small but omnipresent, something that could spread outwards like a virus, growing and spreading until everyone in the world came into contact with it something that was not easily noticed. I needed a substance that could infect everyone in the world and grow inside them with the potential to change the behaviour of whole communities, with the potential to change the world. The answer was hiding in the air where I was breathing, in the very soil I walked on. The answer was all around me. Studies have found that there are between 1,000 and 10,000 fungi spores in every cubic metre of air. In each breath that you take, there are between 1 and 10 spores entering your lungs. A person takes an average of 20,000 breaths a day. That's between 20,000 and 200,000 spores going into your body every day. During this lecture, you will breathe in 360 to 600 fungi spores. Now, some writers do research in the library, but I'm more of a method writer. So you've probably heard of method acting, where actors immerse themselves physically in the world of their character. And I do the same thing with my writing. I have to physically experience a place before I can write about it. I have to touch a thing 
smell it, pull it apart before I put it in a book. Because of this, when I decided to use mushrooms instead of a virus to spread the genetic material in my book, I decided to sign up for an online mushroom growing course, and this course literally changed my life. So this is the hands-on bit. I've got all this stuff here, and I'm going to teach you what I learnt in my course for $150 for free. <laughs> so you need a plastic container to mix stuff in. You need some water, and you need paper pellets. This is kitty litter. All it is is recycled paper pellets. Don't choose the one that has any extra added bits and bobs. It's just recycled paper in pellets. And you need some um, regular dishwashing liquid. And then you need some plastic lunch bags. And the other thing that you need is micropore tape. This is the tape that you put on your skin if you have a cut, and it allows the cut to breathe, but it keeps all the germs out. Okay, I'm going to show you what you do. It's so simple. Oh, you also need some mushrooms. I haven't brought the mushrooms here, but what you need to do is to go to Coles or Aldi, I think, has them, and get oyster mushrooms. They're, the, they're, they're really virulent. They grow against all odds. So get some oyster mushrooms, cut off the tops, cut them up, eat them, keep the stems. Chop the stems into little one-centimetre pieces, and that's all you need to grow your own mushrooms pretty much forever. This is called cloning. So you chuck a bunch of those kitty litter pellets into your container. You crack some water. You put your dishwashing liquid into that water because what that does, it, it kills a bunch of nasties that are in that water. It's kind of like washing your hands to stop the... If there's coronavirus in that water, it's not going into my mushrooms. You shake it up and then you pour the water into the paper pellets. Now, it's kind of, it's a 40-60 mix. So it's 60% water to 40% paper pellets. But you don't need to be really, you know, you don't need to be strict about this thing because mushrooms can pretty much grow as long as there's a little bit of dampness um, and no, you know, other kind of moulds that are going to compete for the space. The mushrooms can pretty much grow. So what you do is you kind of squish it all up together. That's a little bit dry. I'm going to put some more of my, my clean soapy water. And also, uh, another hot tip is not to carry this in your handbag. I could show you what the results are, but I won't. It's very sad. So you squish it all up until it's damp, but when you squeeze it, you're not getting any water drips out of it. You don't want it too wet, because otherwise it encourages other kinds of moulds to grow. Sometimes the oyster mushrooms can go even when you're really wet, but I wouldn't recommend it. Then all you do is you get one of these plastic sandwich bags. You open that up. You mix up. Before you do that, you get your mushrooms, which I don't have here, but you've cut them all up into one centimetre bits. You chuck it through that and just mix it all together. And then you put that whole mix into your sandwich bag, fill it right up. You try and get the air out of it. Try and get it to the top. I haven't quite done that, but get it all the way to the top. And it's basically full, and it's got little mushrooms, you'll see little white mushroom bits in there. Then what you do is you get a pen, you chuck a couple of holes in there, two or three. You get your micropore tape, cut a bit of that, chuck that over the holes, 
then you put that in the cupboard. And then a couple of weeks later, it'll be completely white. It'll be filled with um, mycelium. It will have grown out of those little stems of mushrooms. That will have grown into that whole bag. And all you need to do then is feed it. And you can feed it a number of things. You can feed it really fresh coffee grounds that are not hot. Don't put hot things in it. But um, it's really easy just to get wheat bix because all you need is one wheat bix for a bag that size. You take it out, put it in another container, squish it up with one wheat bix, put the whole thing back in there, leave it for another week or two, it'll fill up with that white stuff again, and then put it somewhere where it gets a bit of sunlight. Mushrooms will pop up out of that. And the mushrooms you can eat. So I've saved you 150 bucks for an online course. Do that at home and you can keep going. They're clones. You can keep cutting the stems off and you can keep growing and growing and growing and growing forever and ever and ever. As long as you've got mushrooms, you can grow more mushrooms. It's amazing. Really great if we have another lockdown and you can't get into those giant queues. Just have mushrooms at home. Chop them up. Mushrooms forever. That's the end of the hands-on bit. <laughs> if you just go away with that, that's good enough, I think. But I'm going to tell you more. On the evolutionary tree, mushrooms are closer to humans than they are to plants. They're a kingdom all of their own. But they breathe oxygen just like we do. And they digest food like we do, only instead of putting the food into the bodies and digesting the food from the inside out, what they do is they lie in their food and digest it from the outside in. So they're also pretty fleshy, which is why some people look at mushrooms with a bit of disgust. There's actually quite a few people who are phobic. Mushrooms remind us of our corporeality, and they also remind us that we're going to die. So that's another reason why a lot of people are afraid of them. But once you've got your bag and you've picked your mushrooms, you'll be able to eat them, you'll be able to grow them forever, and you will also be able to appreciate that mushrooms are the simplest thing, even if you don't have much sunlight. I've got a little flat with no sunlight. You'll be able to eat forever as long as you have mushrooms. And another fun fact is if you get too many out of that bag, you can cut them, you can put them out in the sun, and you can dry them. You can also use an air dryer, which I do use, but if you dry them in the sun, they store vitamin D. So this is something that we've forgotten about. But in Europe, where they have long winters, you cut the mushrooms in autumn, you dry them in the sun, and they're sucking in that vitamin D. And they're basically storing that so you've got vitamin D tablets in each of those mushrooms to get you through the long winter. There are no downsides about mushrooms, I tell you. Mushrooms are full of vitamins, minerals, antioxidants. They're helpful foods for many health conditions, including type 2 diabetes, and they maintain heart health, and they're a great source of folate for pregnancy. There's even some evidence that some mushrooms, and particularly turkey tail mushroom, can help with cancer treatment and prevention, but there isn't enough research into that for me to kind of guarantee that they're great against cancer, but a lot of people do. It isn't a big leap, then, to think of mushrooms as medicines. Antibiotics are made from fungi. You know, there are even people who are looking at fungi as a treatment for new viruses like the novel coronavirus. Comparatively little research has been done into the kingdom of fungi. We just don't know what the hidden benefits of each type of mushroom might have. In fact, in terms of identifying different species of fungi, 
we have only just scratched the surface. The scientific estimate at the moment suggests that there might be over 1.5 million species of fungi, and only 70,000 of them have been described, which means that 1.43 million species of fungi have not even been given a name. Researching the potential medical properties of mushrooms is in its infancy. It's possible that a cure for so many so-called incurable illnesses is actually just lying under our feet. 420 million years ago, fungi reigned in the world. The largest living creatures on Earth were called prototaxites, and they were giant mushrooms. Long before trees covered the landscape, these mushrooms grew eight metres tall and one metre wide. We have very little understanding about the potential uses of fungi, but they have been used by humans for a very, very long time. Humans have been using yeasts as a type, it's a type of fungi, to leaven bread and to brew beer for thousands of years. In fact, we know that the Chinese brewed beer in 7000 BC. The remnants of two different types of mushrooms were found in the plaque of the teeth of a stone-aged woman to show that she was actually eating mushrooms as a part of her diet. And 5,300 years ago, a Tyrolean man that we call Otzi was discovered in the Alps in northern Italy, and he was carrying a bunch of mushrooms. When they tested it, they realised that these mushrooms had antibiotic properties. They don't know if he was using them as antibiotics, but he was certainly carrying them. It's really interesting to think that people may have known about antibiotics five to 6,000 years ago. We suspect that um, ancient Egyptians, because of images that we have, applied a poultice of mouldy bread to infected wounds. Our modern rediscovery of antibiotics didn't happen until 1928. So if you think about that, that's incredibly, incredibly late to be rediscovering antibiotics if we had them 7,000 years ago when Otzi was around, treating himself for toothache. The best thing that I learned about mushrooms during my deep dive was that mushrooms can taste like bacon, crab, fried chicken. They're excellent replacements in a vegan or a vegetarian meal. Growing mushrooms is a very sustainable form of agriculture. You can grow them in vertical stacks in a high-density environment with controlled lighting. And the waste from that growth, when you've run out of the substrate, you can just actually just chuck them into a tip and that spent mushroom waste can actually feed garden beds and help nurture other plants. If we want sustainable food production, the future of food is mycelium, not meat. I don't know if anyone remembers The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the book or the TV series. There was a, a chapter or an episode called Meet the Meat, uh, it features a genetically engineered animal that wants to be eaten. The animal has language, and it will tell you that it wants to be killed and cooked. It made for a very uncomfortable dinner for Arthur Dent. Well, mushrooms are giving us the same signals. Mushrooms are the fruit of the mycelium, and the fruit contains spores, which when spread will lead to more mycelial growth, Often spores can be spread through animal feces. One great reason to make that fruit particularly tasty. Truffles are a really good example of this. Truffles are mushrooms that grow underground. They don't explode like puffballs spewing spores into the air. 
The truffles can't spread their spores unless they attract an animal to dig them up and eat them. This is why we use truffle dogs and truffle pigs to hunt for them. These are incredibly expensive mushrooms. The truffles emit an amazing odour, and it is that special interaction between the ripe mushroom and the earth they have grown in that causes the odour, which is irresistible to mammals with a nose for it. Humans love that smell and that taste, which is why it's more expensive to get truffles than gold. Mushrooms have mutually beneficial relationship to humans. Sure, mushrooms are delicious, so we eat them and poop out mushroom spores, but mushrooms also manipulate us by getting humans to farm them for personal industrial purposes. If you think about it, we might not be farming fungi. Fungi might actually be farming us or allowing us to farm it. In high-density mushroom farms, mycelium can spread their spores and proliferate in areas that wouldn't be a great growing environment for um, creatures from the fungal kingdom in the first place. In fact, fungi are master manipulators, or perhaps I should say collaborators. They collaborate with animals, plants and insects. They can even turn insects into walking mushroom salt shakers. Some of you might have heard of zombie ants. Well, if you haven't, this is one of the most cool facts about mushrooms. The zombie makers are particular kinds of mushrooms called the cordyceps. And in the wild, cordyceps spores will land on the ants. They'll infect the ants and change the ant behaviour as the mushroom grows inside them. Eventually, it will make the ant, it'll compel it to walk up the tallest bit of grass or a plant and bite down in a particular place on the leaf. And then a mushroom stalk will grow from the head or the back of the ant. And when the mushroom unfurls, it then shoots its spores down. And of course, because the ant's been walking in a trail with the other ants, those spores then land exactly where mushrooms want them, on other ants that get infected below. Cordyceps are an incredibly valuable mushroom, by the way, in Chinese medicine. There's some strong scientific evidence that cordyceps fight inflammation, reduce the severity of tumours, at least in mice they do, and help animals battle type 2 diabetes. There have been very few clinical trials done on cordyceps, on humans, despite thousands of years of use in Chinese medicine. One study, however, has proven that dosing an athlete with cordyceps extract increases their body's ability to intake oxygen during periods of intense exercise, which increases their performance. Cordyceps need a host insect in which to grow, and it's fascinating to read up on how you grow cordyceps. This kind of home mushroom kit, there's always a stage for cordyceps where you say, add insect larvae. And um, I just realised I wasn't actually going to be growing cordyceps at home anytime soon. Some types of mushrooms have a similar relationship with flies and cicadas. Basically, the spore infects that flying insect and then grows out through the abdomen. It seems that the fungi has hyphae that thread up into the brain of the insect and they can actually control the trajectory of those insects. The insects are alive, but the fungi has some control over their behaviour. They are like little mushroom hovercraft and the spores then burst out from the back of the insect while they're flying around, raining down on other insects below. So, yes, mushrooms are super collaborators, enough with the zombie mushroom creatures, but 
their most complex collaborations seem to be with plants. In every garden, every forest, bushland, even in every pot plant, there is mycelium. It grows in long filaments and um, it links all of the plants together under the ground. And it's a way that plants can communicate with each other too. So if one plant is being attacked in that system, it can release chemicals that communicate with plants down the chain saying, I'm being attacked by this insect, so put up your defences now. So weirdly, it's like the internet for plants and they call it the wood wide web. Basically, what it also does is the mycelium moves nutrients through that system. So if you've ever been to the forest and you've seen a tree that's been broken or chopped down and there's no sunlight, it's a really tight forest, but that plant is putting up shoots. Basically, what's happening is instead of that plant needing sunlight to grow, it's getting its nutrients from other plants in that system and the way it's getting them is through that mycelium, through the mushroom body that's actually moving nutrients to those plants. And it's coming from the forest canopy but via other plants. Some people have said that basically it's like a stock exchange and I think that because we're sort of a steeped in a capitalist system, we think that the mushroom must be getting something out of these interactions. But it turns out that that's not true. There are actually plants in that system that don't put anything back into that system. There's a plant called a saprophyte and it's completely white and it grows up and it kind of takes its nutrients from the mycelium network but it gives nothing back into the system and yet the mycelium still gives it um, nutrients to grow. It seems that it's for altruistic reasons. And I know that sounds like I'm anthropomorphizing fungus here. And perhaps I am, but it's difficult to read about mycelium without thinking that there's some kind of a master plan going on. Fungi seems to have an intelligence all of its own. Scientists like to give animals, um, you know, puzzles to try and solve, to work out if they're intelligent or not. But fungi is a master puzzle solver. What um, happens is the fungi can be put in a maze and there can be some kind of a food source in some place of the maze. The mycelium will solve that maze really quickly because what it does is it sends out its cells in all directions at once. And when it finds the food, it sucks back its energy from the sections that haven't found anything and it puts all its energy into the section that's fruitful and that finds food. In fact, Fungus is so good at solving these problems that some scientists have replicated the um, train systems of major cities by putting um, some soil and putting blocks of wood for the fungus that devours wood in at wherever the train stations are. So the big stations have big bits of wood, small stations have small bits of wood. And what happens is that very quickly the fungus replicates the train system exactly. People have been so surprised that it actually replicates the train system but using mycelium. It's quite amazing to look at. And in fact, town planners have realised that this is really good because sometimes the, the fungi actually is better than we have been at getting the fastest way between two areas. So town planners are now using fungi in order to plan the way people access areas of a town better. So we're actually collaborating with the fungus in a more um, important way, I suppose, for the future of humanity. They're super collaborators, but they also um, have super societal structures as well. Fungi have 36,000 different sexes, and each one can mate with the other. I'll just leave that there because we can't even deal with the ones that we have and there's, you know, only a handful that we have. 
the, the fungus is dealing with 36,000 different sexes. They're cool to mate with all of them. I want what they're having. So mushrooms are amazing. I think we've established that. But how exactly did they save my life? Well, as my very specific performance anxiety, I also, as well as that, I also have pretty major depression and anxiety as well. And I've been wrestling with this for years. But just before the pandemic hit, I was in a pretty bad way. My sister lives in southern New South Wales, and in January 2020, she'd been camping on the beach with her three dogs to escape the fires which burned out all the towns around her. The year before this, my father in Tasmania had the boat packed and ready to flee as his home was threatened by fire. Straight after that, my mother in central Queensland was in the way of a giant fire. 2011, I was primed and ready to abandon our ground floor flat, which is on the Brisbane River because the floods were predicted to come up as far as our flat. They didn't, but we were isolated and without food and power for days. I have been doom-scrolling for years, and in recent times I've seen mass fish deaths, whole bat colonies falling out of trees, and it hasn't really helped with my depression. All the scientists I know are depressed, and for very valid reasons. The state of the world is terrible and climate change is real, immediate, and it's too late to go back to the way it was. But strangely, mycologists seem to be very cheerful. It's tempting to think that mycologists might just be microdosing on magic mushrooms, and maybe they are. They wouldn't be able to tell you because psilocybin mushrooms are still a banned substance in many places. I wouldn't be able to tell you, for instance, if I were microdosing on magic mushrooms even now. I'm sorry that I'm not able to tell you about that from personal experience. Um, and I'm sorry that I can't tell you that heroic trips are really great for mental health as well, because I'm sure many of you are here to find out more about psilocybins, but don't worry, I'll just talk about that in a minute. There are other reasons for mycologists to be happy apart from psychoactive mushrooms that definitely work to relieve anxiety and depression, by the way. After the fires of 2020 that almost destroyed my sister's town, the first signs of life to return to many of the burnt-out areas were mushrooms. Fire fungi are mushrooms that pop up after fires. There are several types of fungi that need fires to heat the ground enough to germinate the spores. It's the same with the floods. Many of you will have been astonished by how many mushrooms were popping up in your garden and on the footpaths recently after the floods here in New South Wales. Mushrooms are a sign of renewal. They take what has been destroyed and breathe new life into it. There are pictures from inside the Chernobyl nuclear reactor. It's still impossible for people or animals to go inside the reactor, but robots can be sent in with cameras, and they were able to take photographs. It's teeming with mushrooms. They're all over the walls of the inside of the reactor. Mushrooms are incredibly adaptable and can turn almost anything into food. They can learn to eat things that they don't usually eat. In fact, um, Paul Stamets, who's the godfather of mycology, was asked with another group of scientists to try and find ways of cleaning up oil spills. And he designed a method where he filled these logs of um, cloth 
with um, straw and then put oyster mushrooms inside that straw. And oyster mushrooms are already resistant to salt. So he laid those logs of straw and mushrooms on the oil spills and it sucked up the oil and then mushrooms began to grow out of those logs. And when he took those oil-soaked logs and put them on the ground, just in a normal patch of ground, in 22 weeks microbic life and worms started returning to that and mushrooms were still growing out of those logs and he swears that the mushrooms were entirely edible. I probably also won't be eating oil spill or nuclear reactor mushrooms anytime soon, but you never know, it might actually become quite an interesting new food trend. Mushrooms aren't just a way for us to clean up our messes, though. You can make so much out of mycelium. It's strong and flexible, it's quick-growing, and you can recycle it by putting it back into landfill. Mushrooms will go out of waste and start to break down other rubbish if you just dump it in the tip when you're finished with it. And people are working on concrete replacement made out of mycelium. And we already have recyclable food packages and structures built out of mycelium bricks, And now Hermes has a a range of handbags that you can buy out of um, mycelial leather and Nike's doing shoes. They're on my Christmas list. It's entirely possible that emergency housing could be grown on site quickly using a mushroom kit and the right substrate. So sustainable products and cleaning up our environmental disasters are two very good reasons for mycologists to be happy. And yes, if it was legal, I'd be giving this lecture after ingesting magic mushrooms because psilocybins are amazing, an amazing way to deal with depression and addiction and performance anxiety. Plenty of research has already been done into the medicinal effects of psilocybins. These are naturally occurring chemicals in particular types of mushrooms that interact with the serotonin receptors in your brain, literally changing the way a person perceives the world. Many ancient cultures have known about the use of magic mushrooms for eons. We know that Aztec culture used sacred mushrooms in ceremonies, and we have documentation of people in Siberia using the urine of deer who have eaten magic mushrooms to feel the hallucinogenic effects. In fact, Terence McKenna, a mycologist and author of several books on psilocybins, has posed this idea, because humans, their brain developed really quickly at one point where they got... Um, language, we think that they got language very, very quickly, like within a matter of years. And um, Terence McKenna thinks that this was because of eating magic mushrooms that we actually developed language in the first place. He has a very good argument. A lot of research has been done into psilocybins, particularly at Harvard in the late 50s and 60s, but the research program was shut down when Timothy Leary, um, a scientist at the time, effectively linked the drug to the counterculture movement and the anti-Vietnam movement of the time. He coined the phrase, turn on, tune in, drop out, which became an anthem that signalled the death knell for the scientific research into this chemical. Alcoholics Anonymous co-founder Bill Wilson used LSD, another psychedelic derived from fungi, to treat his own addiction to alcohol. He wanted LSD to be a major part of the 12-step program, but this was not approved. Bill knew that one heroic dose of mushrooms is enough to kick a person's mental addiction to substances if the dose is administered in the right setting and with a trained therapist, only one dose of magic mushrooms will kick the addiction. 
Many universities are currently undertaking clinical studies into psilocybins, and the early data of these new studies is really positive. It seems that magic mushrooms are more effective in the long term than antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication, but only when administered in the proper setting with a trained therapist. And they're, they're not addictive, and there are very few side effects. One of the loveliest therapeutic uses for magic mushroom is the work being done on cancer patients. People who are facing terminal diagnoses are guided through a heroic trip, and the results are a very high percentage of the test subjects report that they are no longer afraid of their impending death. This happens after only one session. The trip dissolves their ego, and this loss of ego leads to a more positive relationship to death. If there is no I then why should we be afraid of the loss of selfhood? Before my deep dive into mycology, I was anxious about climate change. I spent more days than not wondering why I was alive and trying to convince myself that it was worth sticking around. I am not magically transformed by my relationship with mushrooms, but I'm certainly on the right path. The act of growing mushrooms at home has been soothing and helped me stay in touch with nature. Eating those mushrooms has increased my health. Reading about mushroom solutions to environmental problems has given me hope. I now want to exchange everything that I own for a mushroom-based version of the same thing. Clothes, furniture, light fittings, my apartment, my partner. <laughs> I have a temptation to train as a mycologist. And to be honest, I really want to get into microdosing. Sign me up for your clinical trial right now. Most importantly, I fixed the problem that was plaguing my book. Mushrooms are in all of us. They connect us. They can teach us so much about how to live a better life in harmony with the rest of the species on the planet. And I, for one, Thank you for welcome listening. our new Mushroom Overlords. If you enjoyed Overlords. this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.